You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 28th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... The basic problem here is that Facebook insisted on numerous occasions that it's not a publisher. In the end of the day, Facebook is about making money. And if they're going to make money from people putting rubbish on Facebook, then they're going to continue to do it, I suspect. Fact checkers for Facebook quit. What hope for political truths in the digital age? My guests, Somnath Batabayal and James Rogers, will discuss that and the day's other news, including as Wales lowers the voting age to 16, is England starting to be left behind? And a popular American left-wing periodical launches in Brazil... But can magazines be used to import healthy discourse? Plus, instead of simply imagining how the world might turn, our on-the-ground reporters sort out stirring case studies and ask the experts for upbeat insights on getting an edge. We take a look at a brand new edition of The Forecast. I'm Paul Osborne. Monocle's House View starts now. First, it is a new battle being fought in elections around the world. How to combat lies spread online during campaigns. And it's boosted the role of fact-checkers charged with highlighting the worst of the falsehoods. But now Facebook's only Dutch fact-checker has quit because of the firm's refusal to allow them to call out political lies. Well, joining me to discuss this in the studio, Somnath Batabayal, a lecturer in media and development and international journalism at SOAS, and James Rogers, head of international journalism studies at City University in London. At issue, it seems, is Facebook's determination that any fact-checking shouldn't extend to fake facts being spread by politicians. That's right. I mean, they've tried to be quite sort of diplomatic about the way this relationship with the Dutch fact-checker has ended, but you can see that there's a fundamental conflict of interest here and a conflict of purpose too, um, because the fact-checker has quit over not being allowed to um, challenge some of the... uh, apparently demonstrably false statements that politicians have been making and Facebook have um, have defended this as part of I mean, they have this big problem of trying to guarantee free expression and also supposedly at least trying to limit the flow of misinformation but I think the, the, the basic problem here is that Facebook insisted on numerous occasions that it's not a publisher and at the end of the day Facebook is about making money and if they're going to make money from people putting rubbish on Facebook then they're going to continue to do it I suspect. I mean some nothing Nick Clegg former British Deputy Prime Minister no stranger to spin himself who now works for Facebook has said that it's not an appropriate role for the site to referee political debate which is a curious position for a platform that has we know been used to spread lies and misinformation in a number of of election campaigns. Right. Uh, Paul, if I may, I just want to kind of um, talk about this in a s- bit of context. You know, just about se- seven, eight years ago, uh, we were talking about Facebook as the tool for emancipation. We were talking about Arab revolutions. All of this, Facebook was the weapon which people were using or would use. And we're talking about this great digital future. Today, the conversation has so quickly descended into Facebook being the purveyor of lies. Behind this um, lies the fact, as you're just pointing out, that Facebook ultimately is responsible as a company, as a corporate, to its shareholders. And by law, they are bound to see, seek, seek maximize profits for their shareholders. This is the basic fact under which Facebook operates under U.S. law. And again, if 
it takes that some facts shouldn't be checked for Facebook to get more profit. That will be the bottom line. And that's why I'm so concerned, you know, about other things around the, the digital dystopia conversation which Sir Lee was having, you know, and 160 corporations have joined into think about the future of the web. Facebook is part of that. Google is part of that. Unless and until state governments, nation states, steps in heavily to manage and police these corporations, nothing will happen. And the state will not do it because global corporations are, are part of the neoliberal democracy which we perpetrate. But Facebook is very much an outlier here, though, isn't it? Because other, I mean, other profit-centered companies like Twitter, like Google, have tried to make a commercial virtue of the fact that they are restricting political advertising or they are stepping in with fact-checking and trying to call out lies. And stuff. Facebook seems to take this let-a-thousand-flowers-bloom approach of just, well, let anybody say anything and, and it's somebody else's job to uh, shout louder that it's not true. You mentioned Google, but Google, by its the, the way its algorithms and search engines work, profits the company. I, again, I, I mean, Facebook might have taken a far more extreme position, but as I said, global corporations working in the World Wide Web and the sphere will first have to seek by law to maximize their profits and work within those ambits. When you think of good global gov governance of the web, it cannot come from corporations. Facebook is a I mean, you know, is an extreme example of what's... And that's why we are talking about it. And that's why perhaps Nick Clegg has a job there because, you know, he has, as you said, been um, a fine master of spinning. James, although this is a battle that's being fought online, I mean, there's a parallel here with the established media, isn't there, particularly broadcast media, who, if you look at the UK election, for example, are, are struggling massively with politicians who are willing to say things that are demonstrably, provably false. Mm. But then at the same time, having a democratic responsibility to report the competing claims of the parties, a desire to call out things that aren't true, but also a desire to stand above the debate, to appear impartial and not to become a participant, which fundamentally, if, as some people say they should, you say what the prime minister has just said is a lie, mm. you become a participant instead of an observer. That's true. But I mean, I think there's one important distinction here, and it goes back to that, um, the, the words of Nick Clegg, which you quoted earlier on, not an appropriate role for us to referee political debates. Now, obviously, the broadcasters are exactly able to referee political debates in a way that Facebook is either unwilling or unable to do so. So I think, there are, and, and of course, the broadcasters are also regulated and they're required by law during election campaigns in this country to give equal opportunities to the parties to uh, to, to, to measure how much airtime they're all given. So I think that there is a distinction to be made there that broad, the conventional broadcast media are much more controllable, if you like, if that's the right word, um, than, the, um, than, than, for example, social media platforms like Facebook. And the other thing is that, you know, Facebook continually insists that it is not a publisher, that it's not an editorial platform, principally because of the responsibility that would come with that, whereas the BBC and the, and the other terrestrial broadcasters don't have that option. And, you know, they, they do take an editorial stance and they, they decide on the format of the debate shows and so on. So I think that's an important distinction. But it's true that, you know, we've seen this, a lot of this, and one of the big debates in this country now is the fact that leaders are ref declining invitations to turn up. So what do broadcasters do then? The bolder of them just, you know, we in broadcasting we talk about empty chairing somebody, meaning we say so-and-so was invited, uh, but they didn't turn up. 
up, but you know, some Sky recently actually did do just that with a Conservative politician. But then the Conservatives refused to put anybody on that program so for they, several weeks. They have a, so they have a problem. They do have a problem, and, and it's you know the, what the media's challenge really during election campaigns is to make sure they retain control of their editorial agenda because they don't want the party's press machines doing that for them. But James, if I may come in here. Um, one of the things which politicians are increasingly doing is bypassing the media altogether and mm. speaking to the people. Just so on kind Facebook, of, for example. Uh, yes, you know. So um, it's a it's a difficult situation for even traditional media to organize now because they are almost redundant. Uh, you know, Trump goes straight to the public. Uh, Modi in India does the same. This is they're very similar to the 1940s rise of the strongmen. You know, who are doing the same kind of propaganda directly to the public via the radio. Mm. Yeah. Um, does it also you know, question the wisdom, you mentioned the BBC a moment ago, of organisations like the BBC and others around the world who saw that the audience they sought was on Facebook and said, well, let's put our content on Facebook and use it as a primary means of delivering our content, as you say, through someone who says they're not a publisher, they're yeah. not bound by the same responsibilities, and who fundamentally are... A, profit-motivated corporation to whom you then hand your material. That's right. It's really difficult because, I mean, if you think of traditional broadcasting right throughout the last century, you know, and Somnath just mentioned radio, which was indeed huge when it started, and it was, you know, the most influential medium, for example, during the Second World War. Um, but then the broadcasters had control of the means of distribution and increasingly they no longer do and they're having to use other platforms. If you think of a conventional broadcaster, they own the transmission equipment. Um, that's no longer true, so it is difficult for them, but the audiences are there and they have to go after the audiences because the audiences, while they're holding up in a better way on terrestrial television than some people would have predicted you know, 10 or 15 years ago, they are only heading in one direction and that's downwards. So that. Um, what, what do you do? You, want do, do, I, do you I think do, that I, I'm, I'm just I'm just intrigued that on the one hand there is this idea that Facebook is, as you said at the beginning, is a place where people are lying, is a nest of liars in some way. No, I, I didn't say nest of liars, but, but, but the people don't trust <laughs> yeah. necessarily what they see on Facebook. But then organisations for whom trust is a big deal, like the BBC, for example, use Facebook as a delivery mechanism, sort of go into into the lion's den, as it were. True. I mean, in a sense, um, the way Facebook works is that, and by not claiming to be a publisher, it can afford the lack of credibility. Uh, any major news organization, Monocle included, if you start lying, you'll be, it'll not be credible. So, but Facebook can allow for multiple voices by saying we are not that. That's exactly the model they follow, that we allow anything and everything. But behind this, as I made my argument is the profit motive while the bbc or any other news organizations while they might run for profit they have to be credible as a basis to be a news organization i think in that is the difference and also to be fair nation states governments courts law we are all trying to figure out how to um, organize police might be the wrong word the new social medium. You know, Reddit is in, uh, has similar problems. Google has similar problems. We almost don't know. This is happening so simultaneously that law and um, governance is not being able to keep up. That's why Sir Lee's intervention. James Rogers and Somnath Batabayo there, and we'll be back in just a moment. First, though, Monocle's Ben Ryland has some of the day's other news stories. Thank you, Paul. Donald Trump has signed a bill that supports pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. The Human Rights and Democracy Act will essentially introduce an annual audit to check whether the troubled city has enough autonomy to justify its special status with the United States. China has vowed to respond. 
The polling company YouGov claims that the UK's Conservative Party is on course to win a majority of 68 seats at next month's general election. YouGov's model accurately predicted the result of the last national vote and, if it's right this time round, Boris Johnson will remain as the UK's Prime Minister. And Australian officials say controversial laws which are blamed for damaging Sydney's nightlife will be scrapped at the start of next year. The lockout laws, which were introduced in 2012, imposed bar curfews in popular night spots and also restricted when watering holes could serve alcohol. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Paul. Ben, thank you. This is Monocle's House here. I'm Paul Osborne with Somnath Batabal and James Rogers. We move to Wales next, where the country's devolved assembly has decided to extend the right to vote to 16- and 17-year-olds. It'll only apply for elections to the Assembly in Cardiff, though, and not to other votes like next month's general election. And this isn't the first move in this direction, is it? Because 16-year-olds could vote in the Scottish independence referendum too. I think it's, I think it's a good idea. I mean, I think it's a good idea to get young people involved. Um, and I think, obviously, there does need to be a lower age limit at which people can vote. But you know, at 16, you know, some people are working a lot in, 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 in further education, so why not? I mean, if you're going to judge a you know, lack of experience of life, well, there's plenty of people of my age who've had plenty of experience of life and don't necessarily use good judgment as a result. So I don't think, that, I think, I don't think it's a problem. And I think in an age when you know, there's disaffection with political parties, um, why not get more young people involved? Particularly on a trial basis like this, where, as you say, it is just for going to be uh, for the future Welsh Assembly. I mean, the, the, the fundamental argument, Simon, is that, is that you become an adult at 18. In British law. So if you become an adult at 18, then surely that's the point at which you should be allowed to exercise the same democratic mandate as everybody else. True. And uh, I think there'll be pressure on that law to change too. I think um, all opposition parties in the UK are pro-lowering the age. It's the Conservative government at the moment uh, which is saying no to this. Um, Primarily, again, I think it's about losing control. but governments feeling that young people, I, the argument has been, David Liddington has said this, uh, you know, Theresa May's um, deputy, that uh, young people are immature. It's a, it's a silly argument to make at this point of time because we have increasingly seen, you know, we're talking about the new te- teenage starting at 10 years. People are more mature. They have more access to um, several uh, vehicles of knowledge um, and the World Wide Web being part of it. So there's no reason, no, no earthly reason you can think of why it shouldn't happen. This happened in the 1960s when the Wilson government brought it down from the 21 to 18 because there was a need for it and, and um, MPs voted for it. I think it's, um, it's just a few years within which this will happen. It has to happen the world over, the young people, especially the, the biggest crisis of the century is the climate crisis. And there's no one more involved and no one who has more at stake than the young people. They will take this over. And the issue, presumably, is, is, is that... A politically engaged 17-year-old is a more valuable and interesting voter than a politically disengaged 50-year-old. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, um, uh, and this is music to the Labour and the Lib Dem who feel that progressives lie on this side of the uh, age gap, while the Conservatives feel that it's to an older voter where their appeal lies. The problem in the UK particularly is that the older voters in numbers far outweigh the young voters. While in countries like the India, uh, the government doesn't want to give control because the below 30s absolutely overpower the um, above 50s. You know, so there's this tussle. This is more about, at this point of time, more than you know, any moral reason. It's about 
voting and voting blocks. That's that's how the politicians in the UK at least are voting. But James Somnath says that you know older voters massively outnumber younger voters, and and I spoke to some students a couple of weeks ago who said you know well, why do politicians never do anything for students? Why was tuition fees uh, <laughs> introduced? Why, why were they I, able to whack up tuition fees in that way? I've made this argument to some of my students. Actually. And I, do, well, I don't know if you said the same thing that I said, but I said well the thing about old people is they vote, <laughs> and the thing about you young people is you sign up to vote, but then on the day you don't bother. I had this discussion with a group of undergraduate students at the time of the 2015 election and I put exactly that point to them. I said, why do you think the government has given pensioners a bond they can invest in which gives a 4% interest yield yeah. at a time of historically low interest rates and you've got £9,000 a year university tuition fees and I suggested it might be because that generation tended to vote more. Um, it is also, you know, Somnath makes a very good point. If we look at the details of this Welsh story in particular, um, it is interesting. It's the Conservatives and the Brexit Party who seem to be the most opposed to this uh, because, you know, all the surveys suggest that Brexit, the policy both obviously of the Brexit Party and the Conservative Party, uh, is much more strongly favoured among older demographics. And this is presumably why, you know, the Conservatives, from a very pragmatic point of view, see there's very little in this for them, possibly. Um, it, it, it's, it, but no one's morally pure, are they? Because at the same time, the, the, the key reason the Labour Party is very keen to get 16 and 17 year olds voting votes, is because they sure. know that the youth vote breaks for Labour. So yes. no, no one is operating from a position of a high moral ground here. No, no. Uh, fair enough. But I think the moral authority is with the young people. And, and, and just if we take a longer in again uh, view of the last century voting age has always been low it was 25 in india we came down to 21 then 18 this is where things should progress and you know it's i think it's within the decade it'll it'll turn well, next to Brazil, a country under the rule of a man who has styled himself on Donald Trump. But this month saw a famous American left-leaning publication launch its first edition in Brazil. Che Guevara features on the front page of Jacobin Brazil. Is this, though, necessarily the right answer to the rise of right-wing populism? Uh, James, the, the Risk is a magazine that bemoans in lofty intellectual terms the mm. rise of the right is going to be read by people on the left who are predisposed to agree with it anyway. I think that's always a risk with publications like this. Um, and I was just... Uh, I, I, I get um, emails about the content on their website, so I had a quick look at one of those in preparation for our discussion today. And I note that one of the last stories they did on Brazil was that Jair Bolsonaro's Brazil is a nightmare that could get worse, was the headline. So their, their views on that were pretty clear even before that was published back in the summer, before they decided to launch this edition. I think there is, uh, you know, a point that they are possibly, quite possibly, largely preaching to the converted, as we say. That said, you know, I think it's always good to have different voices in the media landscape, and if they want to contribute and they think this is going to work for them, then, you know, good luck to them. I suppose the, the, the line on that is that it might have a small circulation itself, but what it might also do is influence publications, organisations with a wider circulation to include a wider range of voices and opinions. True. And also, it's, um, you know, though the, the step is very small and, you know, it's a, it's a publication with very limited coverage and, and audience. Given the huge presence of the right wing media all over the world, we need as many countering voices, um, however small it be. Having said this, um, and my, my, my general concern with, um, you know, um, marginal media voices is that because it tries not to follow the main media logic of advertising audience, it's less effective. You know, there's no way that particular magazine can do as well as, say, The Spectator. 
simply because the spectator follows that media logic, however embedded in the system spectator is. So therefore, its effect is more. So I completely agree with James, and I'm, you know, I write for organizations which do not have mass publication, but the scope is limited. Its politics are vital, however. So that that is important, in spe- especially when in places like Brazil. Um, the good thing, though, is because it doesn't play into that media logic, it can afford to be far more radical because it doesn't have to buy into government advertising, similar kind of um, targeting audience through ratings. It can do, or it can open up vital spaces of conversation. So you know, it, it play, uh, there are things on both sides of the argument. You mentioned the Spectator there, a, a <laughs> magazine that has a big influence on yes. the right politically in the UK, yeah. even though it has a very small circulation. Yeah. On the other side is the New Statesman it's magazine that has similar influence on India. the left, but not a massive circulation. I mean, is there a gap, James, for other sort of magazines, uh, publishers, say, in the United States or other countries who might look, say, at the UK and think, oh, there's a window here for us to, to do a, a, a British version of this? Well, quite possibly. I mean, I think, you know, you know there's, uh, there's one American sports website that's very successfully, you know, launched here recently called The Athletic, which has spent last summer hoovering up many of the most, you know, prominent football writers in this country, for example. But the key is there, it's a website and an app, and I think part of the problem with launching any new print product these days is who's going to buy it, because, of course, we're seeing... Uh, either magazines going purely online or going purely into a, an, an app, or we're seeing them folding all together. So I think that is part of the challenge, where there may be the demand there for the editorial content. But these days, of course, you don't have to just take decisions about whether there is a market for your editorial content, but also how you're going to deliver it and how is that going to work. Um, and increasingly, it seems that's not necessarily printed magazines. There are, there are success stories like The Economist, like satirical magazine Private Eye in this country, which have both actually increased their print circulations in recent years. But generally speaking, it's an industry that's facing colossal challenges. If you look, say, at, at The Guardian, which uh, was maybe selling three, four 400,000 copies mm. 20 years ago, is now selling maybe 100,000, but at the same time has become this massively influential global liberal voice through its online distribution. The New York Times has subscribers around the world who yeah. are never going to see the print edition. They only know it as a website, and you say, is, is that the future direction yeah, for I mean, influencing another country? Quite possible. You use a key word there, those subscribers, and that's one problem that Guardian's got. You know, if you go on the website, they're sort of saying, if you enjoy this Begging, article, basically. please send us 50 quid, you know. Mm. It's, uh, and it is. I mean, that they arguably took a very bad decision, and a lot of newspapers in this country did, and editors have bemoaned this since in the 1990s when the internet first came along, of putting too much out there for free, and you've created a big generation, or certainly a big share of a generation now, who don't expect to pay for news, and that's a problem because you do need to pay for news. And yeah. some of that, the, the Guardian, the New York Times, these are organisations from big, powerful, rich Western countries. Here is an operation from America going into Brazil, but it, it would be very hard to imagine a, a prominent publication or voice in Brazil or India, for example, being able to set up a successful operation in London. You, you bring us back to that conversation which started in the 1970s with how the West has represented the East, you know, it's a conversation Edward Said has been having for the last 2000 years, how the <laughs> global North and global South is a huge question. You're absolutely right that, you know, the reason that even we don't have Indian writers writing about London, it's only English writers who are allowed to write about the Arab world, the Arab world doesn't write about because it's a question of power, knowledge, and a long history. Uh, into it play in the global politics of today. And you, you will see, um, Marginal organizations or news websites, say, for example, in India, I can quickly give you an example, scroll.in, uh, does well, subscriber base, but will never think about opening up a 
uh, space here. While um, Telegraph can put their correspondent in New Delhi. So it's, it's, it's about global finance. Again, we just land up into that same conversation of how, uh, how things work. James Rogers and Somnath Batabayal, thank you. In a moment, we'll take a look at the latest edition of The Forecast. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay with us. Well, this is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. Finally today with the latest edition of The Forecast, now on newsstands. Let's take a look at what it has in store. Journalists like myself are famously and, in my opinion, rightly reticent about making predictions. What seems certain one evening, the date the UK will leave the EU, for instance, or the slim possibility that the Mayans were right about the end of the world, or even the Millennium Bug, can look rather foolhardy when published and put under the cold light of day. So how can we augur the shifts that will affect design, diplomacy, art or architecture in the year ahead, I ask you? Well, for a start, there's the forecast, Monocle's annual look ahead, which hits newsstands today. Instead of simply imagining how the world might turn, our on-the-ground reporters sort out stirring case studies and ask the experts for upbeat insights on getting an edge. We visit a few lesser-known outposts from Indonesia's mooted new capital to a Swiss school with designs on a better education for all. We also make for a clearing in the woods outside of Budapest, where a horde of Vikings are doled up to shoot a new TV show in the area that's become, to many, a beacon for Hollywood production companies. We ask agents how the digital deluge has affected their industries, from book publishing to pop and the theatre, and we see why a wave of young talent is sparking a Greek revival. Plus, we visit the world's least lonely nation, Denmark, to find out how something as simple as club membership can help put paid to the pangs of isolation. We also cite a few reasons to be cheerful and offer advice on practical changes for achieving a better balance between work and life and publish our first small cities index for those seeking a quieter place to call home. So here's an audacious prediction that goes against the wisdom and cynicism of some corners of the journalistic trade. Next year can be better than this one. For advice, ideas and inspiration on how, do pick up a copy of the forecast. Go on, do as the Danes do. Join the club. And that was a look at the forecast out now. That uh, wraps up today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari, researched by Yulin Goffa and Sam Johannes, our studio managers, Steph Chungu and David Stevens. At 20.00 London time, a new edition of The Urbanist. The Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 here in London. From me, Paul Osborne, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.